Let's open our Bibles or navigate on your device to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We started a study in this wonderful book about three or four weeks ago. If you are new here, we like to study through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to read into chapter 2, verse 5. The topic we find there, the Apostle Paul explains that the cross of Jesus is foolishness to those who trust in human wisdom. And so the title of our message is, Wise Men Say Only Fools Trust Him, But I Can't Help Being a Fool for Jesus. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that we would understand today what it means to be a fool for you in in the uh, sense that you bring out in this text. And that we would uh, be honored, Lord, uh, to be those who represent you to a world that is perishing and in such deep need of your uh, intervention. We pray, for example, Lord, for the folks in El Paso who are suffering from that immense tragedy. Uh, Lord, come into that situation and by your grace and by your mercy, heal hearts. For us this morning, Lord, we, as always, we're excited to study your word. We want to learn about the uh, text in its context and the people that it's spoken to, but uh, originally, Lord, but we also know that it's for us. We don't want to go too far and bend it in in some ways that don't make sense, but we do want to see ourselves in the text and be uh, strengthened to be more like Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would do above all that we ask or think in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said... Amen. Incredible moment. Doctor operates on biker's heart in middle of road and saves his life. Happened earlier this year in England. A guy by the name of John O'Brien, about 47 years old, was involved in a traffic accident. Before he could be airlifted, he suffered cardiac arrest. Dr. Mark Forrest realized the only option was to operate. He opened O'Brien's chest in the middle of the road, exposed his heart and lungs to allow treatment of internal bleeding lung injuries, and to massage his heart back to life. Incredibly, within a matter of minutes, his heart was beating strongly, and the bleeding had been controlled. He went on to uh, recover completely. A doctor who can successfully perform heart surgery is rightfully praised for his or her skills. Someone who can do it successfully without being in an operating theater and without the proper implements or support team, well, that's some doctor. In the first Iron Man... Tony Stark is captured by a terrorist group who demand that he make them one of his weapons of mass destruction. He instead makes the weaponized Iron Man suit and escapes. It's powered by an incredibly sophisticated thing called the arc reactor. When his nemesis, Obadiah Stone, tries to replicate the suit, his best scientists fail to duplicate the arc reactor. At one point, he angrily lashes out saying, Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave with a box of scraps. It's one thing to be a genius inventor with every conceivable resource at your disposal. It's really something quite remarkable to do it in a cave with a box of scraps. Now, these two illustrations are far from perfect, but they capture some sense of what our passage is going to highlight. We're going to read that, and I quote, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not. 
God is like the doctor operating with inadequate implements or the inventor using crude parts. Only in this case, he's working on and then through us. You and I, believers in Jesus, we are the weak, base, despised fools Paul is referring to. He describes us further saying, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Why choose such people to work in and then work through? That no flesh should glory in his presence, he goes on to say. God takes that which is crude and base and crafts us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We're his church, made from a box of scraps, as it were, so that he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God's message to you is so foolish, it brings him glory. And number two, your mission for God is so foolish, it brings God glory. Let's take a look, first of all, in chapter one about the message. Now, last time we were together, we stopped in the middle of verse 17. And so let's pick up there. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, uh, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. We stopped in the middle of that verse because the second half introduces Paul's next topic, the contrast between the wisdom of words and the cross. If you scan the verses that we're studying this morning, you'll see the phrases, the wisdom of words, the wisdom of the wise, the understanding of the prudent, the wisdom of the world, and human wisdom. Scan them again and you'll see the cross of Christ, the message of the cross, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. There is the wisdom of God and there is the wisdom of man. In Corinth, the believers were bringing the wisdom of man into the church, thinking it augmented and somehow strengthened the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is the power of the cross to save men. How would we summarize the wisdom of man? One scholar put it this way, the wisdom of man is at very least a use of the human mind which comes up with ideas contrary to the power of Christ's death on the cross to save lost mankind and restore all things. So it would include all religions and philosophies and psychologies which postulate a theory of human behavior denying we are sinners in need of the Savior who died on the cross as our substitute. And so really it includes all philosophies, all psychologies, all religions. When we say the wisdom of man or human wisdom, we're not talking about things like mathematics or biology or physics. We're not suggesting learning is contrary to God or that you shouldn't get an education. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the most important thing in everyone's life, and that is how to be saved and have a relationship with the living God. My go-to example of looking to man's wisdom today is the effort to integrate secular psychology with biblical truth. Guys like Freud and Jung and Skinner and Maslow, they've discovered nothing that remotely integrates with the ministry of our wonderful counselor and his indwelling comforter. It can only taint and distort biblical counseling. And yet Christians insist on trying to bring this stuff in. And I think I mentioned last week or the week before, when, when you're talking psychology and you mention these different uh, schools of thought, it's not a science in the same way that mathematics or physics is, where one scientist builds on another and on another and on another. These guys all have their own theories of human behavior. Philosophy is the same way. They have a theory of human behavior that really is antagonistic to all other theories. And so they're not adding to any wisdom. You're just grabbing something here and there that you think sounds wise. 
And, um, you know, like I said, you have the onboard counselor, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and we have the Word of God. Uh, and then we have the Christian community. And so we, we're overflowing with resources. We don't need that which is strictly secular uh, in terms of helping us to understand these things. And so that's the kind of thing we're talking about, human wisdom. So verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is more than just the historical event of Jesus' crucifixion itself. It is really everything leading up to it, starting in Genesis, and it is everything coming after it, culminating in the Revelation. You might say that the message of the cross is God's eternal plan for saving sinners. And so obviously the cross is central to it. Back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God uh, said that he would take care of that, that he would come, he would be the seed of the woman, he would crush the serpent's head while his own heel was bruised. And as the Bible is a progressive revelation throughout the Old Testament and into the New uh, you get a feeling and an understanding of what that means. It means that uh, God was going to uh, be born of a virgin, uh, come through a particular nation, uh, die on the cross, rise from the dead, etc. And so uh, it, it's, it's God's plan uh, for saving mankind. Us who are being saved are those who come to the cross to have their sins forgiven. Only there can a man find power to be saved and to go forward walking with God. When I studied psychology, and those of you who've studied psychology or philosophy, I actually studied psychology and philosophy in school. I'm not proud of it, but I did. You know, I have a degree on my wall. Woo! Uh, it got all wet one time. I left it in a drawer and something spilled on it, so it's pretty ugly. But anyway, uh, and I'm out of touch with what they're into now, obviously. I'm no expert, but none of them had anything to do with saying, and because of this, you will have power to live your life. Whatever you're struggling with, you will have power to overcome it. There, there was no talk of power or of transformation from within or anyone living inside of you. It was all your outward works or the way you thought about things, and, and some of it's pretty foolish. If I talked to you for 10 minutes about existentialism, it would blow your mind. Uh, it's foolishness. And they all start from the point of view that there is no God or that he doesn't care, and so we have to figure this thing out on our own. But us who are being saved, we know that the cross is the power of God unto salvation because a transformation took place in our lives. Our spirit was born again, and the Holy Spirit came to live inside of us. Only there will we find power to be saved, and until then, the cross seems foolish to those who are perishing. This tense here means that they are perishing now and they will perish eternally, conscious in torment, unless they come to Jesus crucified for them. And so um, whether you find it morbid or not, there's a sense in which everyone we look upon, if they're not a Christian, they're in the process of perishing eternally. Uh, they are still under the Adamic curse in the sense that uh, sin brings death. The wages of sin is death. There's physical death, of course, at some point, but also eternal death, which is separation from God in a place of conscious torment. And so you either come to the cross where there's power to save or you perish. But it seems foolish 
to those who are perishing. They, they um, don't understand how the death of this, uh, you know, philosopher or uh, teacher in Galilee so many years ago can have any effect on them. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, this is from the prophet Isaiah. It's here as an illustration of God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. The vicious Assyrian Empire had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. There was a time when, the, when Israel was split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel, ten tribes. The southern kingdom was called Judah, two tribes. So the Assyrians had come and they had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Judah to the south paid tribute to Assyria. Wanting to get out from subjection to Assyria, King Hezekiah of Judah refused to pay the tribute. There was a change in the Assyrian government. I think a new king came into power and he thought it would be a great time to make a move uh, and not pay tribute. And they entered into an alliance with Egypt, thinking that the two nations together would be stronger and would be able to uh, keep Assyria away. But this led to an invasion of Judah by Assyria who took 40 cities and besieged Jerusalem with mounds. So much so that Hezekiah yielded to the demands of the Assyrian king and agreed to pay him 300 talents of silver and 30 of gold. Now, the Assyrians returned to besiege Jerusalem a second time. They broke their part of the agreement, decided, why just get tribute when we can have the whole thing? This time, Hezekiah sought the Lord, relying on him to save them. And that's the time when the Lord dispatched one angel who killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers as they slept in their camp, ending the siege. Uh, And it wasn't long after that that the uh, king of Assyria was uh, then uh, assassinated by his own sons. And so one situation... uh, We don't want to be under tribute, and so we're going to join an alliance with Egypt, and that's going to do it for us. Another situation, uh, we are paying tribute, but they're trying to kill us anyway. Lord, what can we do? And God took care of that. And so this illustration, human wisdom always says, make an alliance, get stronger. God's wisdom says, stay in reliance on me. Now, I don't want to get off on a big tangent, but you know, sometimes people think if all the Christians in a community would just get together, there would be so much strength in numbers. And that, I don't know that that's not true. I, I, yeah, I've never really seen that happen, except in times of revival. Uh, but most of the stories I read in the Bible are stories about strength in uh, negative numbers. A Gideon, uh, you know, those kinds of things. You've got too many people because God wants to get the glory. So if every Christian and every church united and we had big services in the neighbor bowl and, you know, that kind of a thing, um, if God wasn't leading it, if it was just the work of man, it would be a, a work of man and man would get the glory. Uh, and so God wants the glory. And so a lot of times he works with uh, fewer materials and fewer people. And then verse 20 says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The wise refers to non-believing Gentiles, the scribe to non-believing Jews. They are both disputers. The mercy and grace of God's plan makes them look foolish in that their best efforts in religion or philosophy or psychology save no one. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, 
It pleased God through the foolishness of the message priest, uh, preached rather, to save those who believe. What Paul is saying here is that it was wise of God to devise a plan in which man cannot know God by his own wisdom. Human wisdom always defaults to some work or works, some self-effort or self-sufficiency. Human wisdom gives you cause for boasting. It inspires pride, not giving glory to God. And so God's plan of salvation is especially designed so that people will look at it and be in awe and wonder of the grace and mercy of God. They should see nothing of human effort in a person getting saved. And that's what he's saying. And you can see how this works out or what this works out to uh, in the lives of the Pharisees of the New Testament. Uh, actually, the Pharisees started off well in the time of Malachi. They were the people who would get together and talk about God and have meetings about God and, and live holy lives. And God said he was going to write a book of remembrance about them. But by the time we get to Jesus, the Pharisees had turned into a group of proud, self-serving, self-righteous individuals who believed that they were in charge of their own salvation by keeping the law. And so God says, no, that's not how it works. Uh, it's all of grace. It's all by mercy. Uh, there, no one should look at a person who gets saved and say, now that guy, if anybody deserved to get saved, it was that guy. He did so many good works and so many great things, such a nice guy, such a sweet gal. It uh, doesn't mean you have to be the opposite of that, but there shouldn't be any real uh, praise to the human uh, in that situation. It should all go to God. For the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Didn't Jesus give the Jews plenty of signs that he was the Messiah? Didn't he raise the dead and heal the sick and cast out demons? He sure did, but the Jews were looking for a political deliverer. They thought their Messiah would be a man who would set them free from Rome. They were waiting for a sign that their conquering hero had come. They didn't consider the signs that Jesus was doing uh, they didn't mean anything to them. It's, it seems weird to us to think, how can healings and exorcisms and resurrections or, or resuscitations not mean anything? Uh, why don't they understand? Because none of those things were contributing to them being, uh, overcoming the yoke of Roman bondage. In fact, in some senses, it was making things worse because guys like Herod were taking notice of Jesus and not... Uh, thinking it was cool what he was doing. And so they were looking for some other type of Messiah. Jesus told them the only sign they would get was the sign of the prophet Noah. And he talked about it in terms of his death and burial and resurrection in the three days that he would be in the, in the tomb. It was the utmost folly to them that their Messiah must be a God-man who had to die a criminal's death to deliver from sin and Satan. I did a little bit of research, not a ton, but uh, on some Jewish websites, Jewish encyclopedias and whatnot, and there are really a lot of different theories that Jews held about who and what the Messiah would be and how he would present himself. And none of them had anything to do with him being God in human flesh. And so this was something that was beyond any Jewish understanding of their Old Testament scripture. Uh, and so they just didn't recognize Jesus. Gordon Fee describes the Greek mind this way. He says, no mere human in his or her right mind or otherwise would ever have dreamed up God's scheme for redemption through a crucified Messiah. It's too preposterous. It's too humiliating for a God. And, and so the Greeks had these uh, ideas about God 
that precluded them from thinking God would ever sacrifice in order to save them. Uh, And so when you started talking about the cross of Jesus Christ, they thought it was laughable and ridiculous. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. Even though the Jews were stumbled by the message of the cross, Paul preached it. Even though Gentiles seemed unlikely to receive it, he preached the cross. And so he didn't change his message for his audience. Uh, There's only the one message, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ, which, as I said, encompasses everything about God's plan, but it all comes down to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, And, of course, it did stumble the Jews, and he got laughed at by the Greeks, but that was his message. Because in verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of uh, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Don't let this word called throw you. All are called. Jesus said that by being lifted up on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. He is the savior of all men, the Bible says, especially those who believe. And so uh, it isn't that there's just some specific small group of people that are called and no one else is. Uh, Jesus said, this cross that I'm gonna die on and rise from the dead from, uh, this is gonna have the power to draw all men and those who believe will be saved. And so the gospel is a universal solution to the universal problem of sin. There is zero power in man's wisdom to transform you. Nothing human wisdom has suggested can cause you to be born again and become the residence for God, the Holy Spirit. They're not even on that wavelength. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness and weakness of God are better than human wisdom or strength. And it's not that God is foolish or weak, quite the contrary, obviously, but his plan to save you seems that way on purpose so that no man may glory. And in that sense, it's a brilliant plan. Uh, and, And of course, no one would have ever come up with that. We are to share a simple message. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The Old Testament builds up to it. The New Testament looks back upon it. It is the the foundation and the ground upon which we live. And then your mission for God, number two, it's so foolish it brings glory to God. In Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2, there's a running dialogue between Drax and Mantis, the chick with the antenna, about how ugly and disgusting Drax thinks she is. Not exactly great for your self-esteem. Self-esteem is still a thing, according to psychology today, and I quote, confidence in one's value as a human being is a precious psychological resource and generally a highly positive factor in life. It is correlated with achievement, good relationships, and satisfaction. Strap in. Your self-esteem is about to take a big hit. Verse 26, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Looking around at a gathering of Corinthian believers in Christ, you'd see few who were wise by worldly standards, few who were mighty, meaning in positions of authority, few who were of the upper classes. To be frank, They were a bunch of social losers with few Facebook friends and no one to Snapchat with. And and so that's the kind of people. It wasn't the city officials. It wasn't the Greek or the Jewish officials. It wasn't the cream of the crop uh, from the social elite. It it was a bunch of what we would call average Joes and Janes. 
and, and, you know, just nothing spectacular about any of them. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Now, at first read, any self-esteem a Corinthian might have had left was trampled upon. Now we see that they were foolish and weak and base and despised. Where's the encouragement in that? Well, how many times in those two verses does it say God has chosen just those kind of people? That's right. It says it three times. And what do those kind of people do? They put to shame the wise and the mighty. They bring to nothing the things that are. The things that are... The things uh, are those folks who put stock in being wise and mighty and noble in the eyes of the world. And so these other kind of people, these saved people, bring them down in, in terms of showing them what is really and truly important. Albert Barnes says of the phrase, bring to nothing, that which is nothing, that which is worthless, which has no existence, those flyings which were below contempt itself, and which in the estimation of the world were passed by as having no existence, as not having sufficient importance to be esteemed worthy even of the slight notice which is implied in contempt. For a man who despises a thing must at least notice it and esteem it worth some attention. And so this reminds me of what Jesus said to the Laodiceans. They thought themselves rich and having need of nothing. He said, in fact, they were spiritually speaking, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so that's what Paul is describing in different language, what Jesus says to the Laodiceans. And he says, you guys are called, but you're not really you know, of the higher class. You're not in authority. There's not much going for you. But you make these other people look like nothing, spiritually speaking. How will believers bring to nothing the things that are? Well, one future example of this is at the second coming, We know that Jesus is going to return with his saints, and those who have survived the great tribulation will marvel at the transformation. And so when we return with Jesus at the second coming, we'll be in our robes that are adorned with our good works, and we will be in our glorified heavenly bodies. And when people see that, they will understand what God was talking about when he sought to draw them to himself and promised to transform them. And we... they will be like nothing compared to uh, what the Lord has made us into. And so these descriptors, they're not only for the Corinthians. They are every believer. They are you and me. Do you think of yourself as wise and mighty and noble? Probably not. I I mean, you don't go around all day thinking, man, I'm a really smart. And uh, I'm a a noble guy. Uh, Mighty, I don't know. That's certainly not going to hit. But how about foolish and weak and base and despised? Before you answer, though, read verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The more foolish and weak and base and despised, the more glory to God in regenerating and transforming you. And so it's not a bad thing because it's going to bring glory to God. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is how God in his wisdom sees you because you've come to the cross. You're in Christ, you're redeemed, you're righteous, and you're sanctified. Those are the works of God impossible for human wisdom but made possible by Jesus. And so those 
off-scourings, those things that are in the box, you know, the, the despised and the weak and all, the Lord works in them and this is what you become, in Christ redeemed, righteous, and sanctified. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. This is a reference to the ninth chapter of Jeremiah. The prophet knew that God's judgment was coming. In fact, that was Jeremiah's message to the nation, surrender to Babylon and it'll be easier. And of course, the people rejected that. Uh, They thought that because the temple was in Jerusalem, God would never allow it to be destroyed. And so they would say, well, Jeremiah, the temple. Uh, God's certainly not going to let Solomon's temple be overrun and destroyed because that's where he's put his name. But he did allow that. Uh, and that's what the Babylonian captivity was all about. If the Corinthians wanted to know if the foolishness of God was greater than the wisdom of man, they need only look at themselves, and that's what Paul tells them in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And so Paul arrived in Corinth. There were no believers, no church. By the time he left, 18 months later, many in that city had been saved by the simple preaching of the cross. He didn't have a book signing. He didn't have some uh, strange way of putting it. Um, He had no gimmicks. He just preached the cross. They couldn't credit Paul. He says not only that, he had been weak and afraid and trembling. He had not appealed to human wisdom at all. He wasn't even a good speaker. He wasn't somebody that's pleasant to listen to. I wonder how long, you know, we we would listen to somebody who's just not engaging at all. Um, One of these weeks, I'm going to flesh this out more, but um, many of you know about Jonathan Edwards. He's a great American preacher who was involved in the great awakening. I didn't know this about Edwards because everybody says, oh, you need to read his books and you know, he's this brilliant guy. Everybody says he was the dullest person on the face of the earth. And he would only read his message, uh, nothing wrong with that, but he would only read it in a monotone and it would go on for hours. Still, many were saved by choosing the lowly Corinthians. God declared that he has forever ruled out every imaginable human system of gaining his favor. He never lift his eyes. How long would you go to a church like that? I don't know, maybe you would. I wouldn't. Uh, and so uh, and Paul was saying something like this. He says, hey, I, there was nothing about me that could endear you to this message. No one would want to follow me. But the cross had a power to save you. Gordon Fee imagines Paul saying this to them. Look at the message. It is based on the story of a crucified Messiah. Who in the name of wisdom would have dreamed that up? Only God is so wise as to be so foolish. Furthermore, look at the recipients. Yourselves. Who in the name of wisdom would have chosen you to be the new people of God? Finally, remember my own preaching. Who in the name of wisdom would have come in such weakness? Yet look at its results. Reminds me of the Magi. Smart guys, uh, probably in the tradition of Daniel, knowing about the coming of Christ. And where do they go? They go immediately to the palace and they talk to Herod because they assume that this Messiah, this anointed one, would be born in the palace as the king of the Jews. And in fact, he wasn't. He was born in a lowly manger. They found him about 
two years later in a home uh, living a, a kind of a normal life. The whole thing is just backwards to what we think. In verse five, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Now this verse is a call to action. In order for your faith to be in the power of God, you are at times going to have to reject human wisdom and thereby look to the world as if you are an absolute fool. The base word for foolish can mean dull or stupid. Strong concordance says it can be translated blockhead like that lovable loser, Charlie Brown. I was surprised to see that. I'm reading the, you know, the definition and one of them is blockhead. And uh, I mean, we love Charlie Brown, but he's a blockhead. Gets rocks, you know, in the mailbox and things like that. Our word moron derives from this word, or as Bugs Bunny would say, what a maroon. Remember that? Call people nimrods and maroons. Ask yourself, and this this is what I think, everything I'm saying this morning boils down to this. Two questions. Same question, but from different angles. Ask yourself, has there been a time or times in my life when I put my faith in God and it made me look like a moron to others, especially believers? Or have there been times when I refused to put my faith in God because I knew it would make me look like a blockhead? That's what we're getting to here. Uh, You know, all of this talk about fools and despising and the off-scouring and all that kind of stuff, that's all very academic. But Paul basically says, I was willing to be thought of as an absolute fool. And in fact, you think me a fool with no human wisdom. But I'm going to point you back to the cross because that's where you got saved. And look at yourselves. There's nothing mighty or noble about you guys. And yet God has chosen to save you. And so what, what kind of wisdom do you need? You only need God's wisdom. If I'm reading 1 Corinthians correctly, we ought to be thought of as moronic blockheads more often. Not stupid, not ignorant. We're talking about reliance on God rather than human wisdom with regard to spiritual things. And so there might be a, you know, one or two or several big decisions in your life where you made a decision for God and people thought, that's stupid. I wouldn't do that. You're giving up this. So what about that? Um, you know, and yet you know that God is leading and he's directing you. And, and, you, and you know what? You even feel foolish. You feel like, this is foolish, God. I mean, you're making me look foolish. And God would say, no, you're making me look wonderful because they're going to see uh, what it means to to know the living God. Or there may be a series of of smaller decisions, you know, in your life where every now and then you have to appear foolish. I mean, let's face it. We like to be on top of everything, have everything planned out. And, uh, you know, uh, especially as I've gotten older, um, you know, I'm, I'm... 35 now. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Somebody thought I was 49 the other day, and I thought, yeah. But uh, anyway, I think they lied. But uh, anyway, maybe it was 94. Maybe I'm dyslexic. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, You start thinking, oh, you know, you should have planned for retirement better, and you needed to do that. And some of us are like, everything is just all dialed in just right and stuff. And I think sometimes God would come and, and say, hey, how about you do this instead? And am I really willing to be a fool? Because I, I look at that and I say, that is a foolish, if, nine out of 10 people or maybe 11 out of 10 people would say, that's foolish, don't do that. And you don't do it for foolishness sake, you do it because the Lord is leading you. But I think a lot of times God is leading us to do something foolish for him and we just won't even entertain it 
because we immediately shut it down because it's foolish. Because, I, Lord, I'd look like a moron if I did that. What a block, it's a blockhead move. And the Lord said, yeah, I know. It's a Paul the Apostle move. It's a Peter move. It's a John on Patmos move. It's, you know, whatever. God will never seem strong to others if you are not willing to appear weak and in fear and in trembling. Isn't that just the opposite of how we want to appear? It is, but you might think of Jesus dying on the cross, naked and bleeding and suffering and dying and despised and rejected and abandoned. If anybody was a fool, it, and I say this respectfully, it would be Jesus, right? I mean, he did, even his disciples didn't understand what he was doing. And he seemed foolish, and he was derided for it, but he did it for us. And so is it really too much for you and me to be thought of as fools for him every now and then as we journey home? Let's pray.